This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm again in Montreal, recording on Kanyakahaga territory, the place that's long served as a site of meeting and exchange among many First Nations, including the Kanyakahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Hurnwendat, Abenaki, and the Anishinaabeg. Recently, I finally had the opportunity to visit my aunt and uncle outside of Montreal. And one of the pleasures of that visit was just sitting around, remembering stories that involve my parents, hearing them told, telling them or retelling them. Sometimes I would nod vigorously about some element of a story, and at other times I would just challenge what I heard. No, there's no way my mother would have thought that, I would say. Or, I think my father did that for very specific reasons. So, on the one hand, telling those stories helped conjure up memories of the two people I loved best on earth and made them seem alive for me again. Sharing those stories helped me understand who they were and who I was in relation to them. On the other hand, the stories also made me feel closer to these two surviving relatives with whom I was conversing. That's the power of stories, I think. They not only help create identity, they help develop and nurture community too. And that community has very definite boundaries marked by a shared understanding of those stories. I bet you know what I'm talking about. The moment you hang with a group of friends or relatives and then suddenly someone starts drawing on this cache of stories that you all collectively know and often begins with, remember the time when? And then one by one people add details or they challenge interpretations and they shift an emphasis here or there. Well, Thomas King's story, One Good Story, that one, which heads up the collection of stories of the same title, counts on this kind of dynamic. King is a writer of Cherokee and Greek origins whose career spans decades and encompasses multiple publications, Medicine River, Green Grass Running Water, Truth in Bright Water, and The Inconvenient Indian, just to name a few. It's actually hard to pick one work to focus on for this episode because he's consistently good. At last, I finally decided to focus on One Good Story, that one, as one of the two of his short stories that happened to be my favorite. The one I didn't choose is called Borders. It's going to be the subject of another episode because it was made into a graphic novel recently. You'll also understand why I'm saving the story for later when you listen to the takeaway portion of this episode. Published in 1993 by HarperCollins, One Good Story, that one, is ostensibly quite simple. It's about these three white men who visit an Indigenous elder because they want to hear a good story, and then ultimately about the story the elder tells them. It doesn't take much stretch of an imagination to appreciate the implications here. King is alluding to the practice of anthropologists who would visit Indigenous elders to take their sacred stories and publish them or otherwise fix them in ways that didn't involve securing consent or showing respect for their sacred nature. But more generally, they are just not a part of this community, and they wouldn't recognize their stories if they walked into them in the middle of an empty street. Before I say 
anything else, let me say that one of the more interesting facets of the story is the way it's told. It's a first-person narrative, and it's told in this colloquial or disarmingly casual voice, even as the title suggests. One good story, that one. But in ways that make it, initially at least, a little peculiar to follow. So my former students sometimes feel disoriented when they start reading it because the voice also initially seems disembodied to them. To whom, they wonder, is he speaking? I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, King is also using a literary technique here that's a little off-putting at first, but also riveting. It's a little like standing before Van Gogh's Starry Night. So in standing before Starry Night, you know that you're looking at a night sky, but the form of abstraction he employs, those mesmerizing, undulating lines, invite you to look beyond the form, to read beyond and in between those very lines, to capture the essence of what you're looking at. And by the way, a friend of mine tells me that if you haven't seen this painting, you still can by visiting the immersive Van Gogh exhibit. I'll include a link in my show notes. So we must read beyond and in between the very lines of the story to capture its fuller implications. One way to begin looking at the story is to consider the title. Which one is the good story? So the narrator wants to tell a story about Billy Frank and the Dead River Pig. You're probably wondering who Billy Frank is and what the story about the Dead River Pig is. I did, and I'm still wondering now, because we never do learn who they are. Why? Because these three white men who come to visit him won't be deterred from what it is that they're after. And it certainly isn't the story about Billy Frank. So we have to ask, is the good story the one that the visitors ask of our narrator? Or is it the one the narrator would like to tell them about Billy Frank and the Dead River Pig? Or is it the one he actually ends up telling them? It's a creation story about Adam and Evening, which is a clear reference to Adam and Eve, although the white visitors never quite realize they're being duped. So is it that story? Or is the story finally the one that we, as readers, are being told? The narrator deliberately obscures the possibility in the first paragraph. The story could be from, quote, a long time ago, or maybe 100 years, or maybe, just maybe, it's the one we're hearing right now. When we think about which story is the good one, we begin to understand the complexities of audiences and stories, and for whom and why they're being told. The three white anthropologists, presumably that's who they are, who come with the narrator's friend to hear the story in question certainly have their own ideas about what they'd like to hear. Sacred stories. Now, King is subtly reminding us here of the imperial eyes or the imperial gaze that would invade, appropriate, and lay claim to elements of indigenous culture, to the people themselves. The violence of this gesture is subtly alluded to in their desire for something sacred, but in other ways as well. That there are three of them might also be read as a parody of the three wise men in the biblical story who come bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to honor the Christ child. These men are anything but wise, and they're not seeking to give anything at all. And this is a really a, another tip-off that they're not part of the community and really don't want to be. 
Instead, King emphasizes the racialized aspects of anthropologists by referring to the whiteness of their teeth. At least we should pay attention to the fact that it's our narrator who's also noticing this fact about them, and perhaps even consider Little Red Riding Hood's injunction, what big teeth you have. There is an implicit threatening element to this kind of observation. They may be coming there to devour the culture. In fact, there's an imbalance even in the kind of offerings brought to the exchange. While the narrator's friend comes prepared bringing tobacco, these men have brought nothing but a tape recorder. It kind of dates the piece too, but you get the idea. They have a tape recorder to take away the sacred stories they hope to secure. So when they bring greetings, this is meant to contrast ironically with the many nice things they should have brought. This is why, in spite of the narrator's hospitality and injunction that they, quote, sit down, rest, eat something, they never take a seat or get quite comfortable. They're really only interested in what they can get. They're highly uninterested in what would happen if they actually sat down and got comfortable in order to have an open conversation over a cup of tea. Forging relationships remains one of the most frightening of prospects. We have to remember that what's key to Indigenous epistemologies and frameworks is precisely that, though. Respectful relationships. And that includes, by the way, the relationship with the land we're on and with others. The visitors aren't interested in either of these relationships, and as such, they're not models of wise men, but instead rather foolish ones. Their consistent refusal to hear the story about Billy Frank means they're also refusing an understanding of the community, as it is in that present moment. They assume, too, that the narrator will simply turn over one of the sacred stories to them, although they're in for a little surprise. The narrator does tell them a story, oh yes, and that story is not about Billy Frank either. Instead, as I've already said, he invokes elements of the creation story from Genesis to generate a parody of the story of Adam and Eve, whereby the former Adam is quite intellectually deficient whereas the latter, Eve, is curious, but definitely smarter. Of course she is. Now, while the yoking together of elements of the Garden of Eden with contemporary images may be humorous for Western readers, it's also meant to highlight and denounce how settlers, people like me, for instance, impose their understanding onto those of Indigenous persons. And so it's additionally meant to undermine attempts to invade Indigenous cultures by demanding to understand, to know, or to hear. We don't get to make such demands, nor should they be answered. This is a little like having someone you don't know come into your kitchen and having them ask you to bury your chest or drop your pants for them. See what I mean? Otherwise, seriously, I mean, why would you? And do you think you should be offered a cup of tea after you've made an invasive request? The narrator further undermines the intelligence of his listeners, who not only fail to recognize that they have not heard an Indigenous sacred story, they actually fail to recognize the story as one of their own. By this point, their lack of intelligence is quite spectacular. In other words, they can't even appreciate the sacred elements of their own culture. Another way to read this, however, is that they take their own culture far too seriously to understand that this is happening, or that 
in trying to invade indigenous cultural territory, they've actually invaded their own. What King has done is to showcase how the narrator retains power, which emerges from being able to impede or block the telling of a narrative, from withholding it from his ill-mannered guests. In the process, in his telling of the narrative, he begins to rename Western spiritual and cultural figures, such as St. Mary, spelt M-E-R-R-Y, so perhaps a reference to Santa Claus, to show how an imperial culture also renamed indigenous places and persons and tried to overwrite indigenous cultures. This process is reiterated in the naming that occurs in the sacred Adam and Evening story thereafter. While mocking how Adam names all the beasts on earth as recounted in the story of Genesis, the narrator also pokes fun at the fact that these three men are interested in doing something similar if not affixing names, then fixing stories. Stories that were never meant to be fixed or mediated in the ways that these three men expect. In a sense, as this is happening, we as readers are developing a relationship with a narrator who is speaking to us in an informal way. You know, he says to us almost confidentially, they come to my place. It's very clear that he's invoking an oral form of telling us a story, but that doesn't mean the targeted audience is necessarily indigenous. Certainly, however, there is a marked ambivalence in terms of for whom the story is being told. I mean, we don't ever hear about Billy Frank, which we certainly would have had we been a part of that community. It's clear, therefore, that settlers will not understand all the elements of that story given this ambivalence. We certainly don't know who Billy Frank is, which positions us as outsiders to this community and to this story, just like the three white men. We're also clearly outsiders because when Coyote is introduced or integrated into the story, it engenders another layer of confusion. You may not have read this story yet, so let me just say that as a narrator tells the story to the three white visitors, the coyote just pops in for a visit. He's at some level literally there, because at the end of the story, after the three white visitors leave, the narrator proceeds to clean up the coyote tracks all over the floor. Again, clearly, the coyote has been there. There are many interpretations I've read about coyote's appearance. At the very least, one important thing to note is that the moment the narrator tells us the story of Adam and Evening, Coyote appears and messes everything up. There's a reason we don't want to foreclose or limit our understanding of the presence of Coyote, and that figure's presence between four and eight times, I'm sure, in the Adam and Evening story. Coyote in Cherokee narratives is a subversive figure who blatantly muddles things and occasions disorder. In so doing, however, Coyote helps to create possibilities to prevent stories from being fixed in one way or another and reminds us how we must be respectful listeners and respectful participants in stories being told to us. This is the takeaway portion of the episode. I actually reached a, a former student of mine, Darren Prine, at home. Here are some excerpts from that particular interview. I'm talking today to Darren Prine, who introduced me to the genre of what I'm calling the graphic novel. 
Full disclosure, I know nothing of this genre, and Darren assured me I was completely missing out, so he began by lending me some materials, some books from his own collection. So first of all, welcome, Darren. Thank you for having me, Linda. It's good to talk to you again after so long not getting to because of the whole COVID thing. We can at least chat this way. I want to begin by chatting more generally about the graphic novel. What makes a good graphic novel? Well, your average comic book is going to be maybe like 20 or so pages. The graphic novel could have upwards to like 100 to even more. The mm-hmm. classic graphic novel that most people would know of would be something like Watchmen. What's Watchmen? So just... there, there are going to be people out there who don't even know what that is. Okay, well, yes. like Watchmen is one of the first kind of big graphic novel that put comics on the map as literature. Why is that? What is it? What's so special about it? Okay, so it took the superhero genre, the uh, you know, like the thing that most people know comics for with like Marvel and DC, and it is a DC comic done under the vertical license, where um, they just decided to make a far more adult story out of these characters so that the the idea i guess being that people might take comics a little more seriously Mm -hmm. so it's just it was so different from anything else anyone else was reading at the time that it just kind of blew people away that like oh yo comics all of a sudden aren't for kids anymore (laughs) like they ever really were so um i don't know if you remember and if you do if you could tell the listeners what you started me off with and why oh i started you off with spice and wolf because i knew you were a feminist (laughs) <laughs> right? like, like, I figured that if you're going to try to bring someone into a genre that they don't know I think it's better to try to appeal to what at least I would perceive as your interests mm-hmm. so that that's a little lighter to go into like it's not action packed it's very story driven um, the female protagonist is just as in charge as the male one and a lot of the times even more in charge and I figured oh yo strong female character and it's kind of like leaning a little bit towards her being like the smartest person in the whole book (laughs) oh you know what if I'm gonna introduce this teacher to it I should definitely hey by the way my favorite my favorite series overall as well is it and I I, think if I was gonna get you into it yeah oh yeah it was one of the first ones I've read what makes a good graphic novel? What? Why is this one of your favorites, for example? Oh, okay. Well, personally, it's just the stories, and it was so different from anything else that I've read. But a really good graphic novel does a good mix between telling the story through the words that you read on the bubbles, but also being able to tell a story through just the visuals themselves. Mm-hmm. What, or rather, why would you recommend reading this genre over others? Because I, I remember in the days when we could actually sit together in my office, you would try to persuade me that this was far more appealing than some of the other things I was choosing for my classes. <laughs> well, it was more uh, well, like well, per- personal preference for one. I find the ability to actually, like as someone who's very much a visual individual, you're looking at the images, you might even be able to still, like do like a little bit of a Sherlock thing and break down what's in each image to see if there's something that you might notice later, see like an expression, the way the person was drawn. Because obviously they're not going to draw a character in a specific way unless it's on purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or little things like that. Then you get to break down not just the words, but the image itself. And it, it adds a lot to the story. So what are your personal favorites? Personal favorites? Uh, well, I will say I do really like Spice and Wolf. Mm-hmm. Me as too. A, as a series, just overall. Now the ones even just like also Goblin Slayer recently has been something that I've been really into and reading and wanting to keep up with because the story is just very uh, 
very catching. So let's uh, let's leave something with the listeners. Tell me what you would recommend for neophytes like me. So you had recommended to me Spice and Wolf. What else would you recommend for newbies to the graphic novel? Oh, for newbies into something that's like a graphic novel? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, um, I can only really ever recommend stuff that I like. Like if someone's willing to, say, sit down and read a graphic novel series that's about three volumes, it's called uh, Middle West. And if someone's willing to sit down and potentially read a story about um, the cycle of abuse, even as you yourself as a kid are being hurt, potentially the person who is hurting you has also been hurt and ends up being this really bad cycle. And the whole thing is kind of about coming to an understanding mm-hmm. that a lot of it doesn't end up necessarily being that person's fault. It's the fault of the person before them and before them from there, but also understanding that we make our own choices. Mm-hmm. and trying to find forgiveness through it. It was actually really good to read. That sounds um, excellent, actually. Yeah. Watchmen, obviously, I'd say that's the one that everyone probably says to read, but I guess it'd be a good place to start just in order to also see, like, the artwork. It's also a book that you can really deconstruct just in the term that it's format and the way that it's formatted and whatnot, mm-hmm. and how, like, from the center of the book, if you start folding out from the center, all the pages actually mirror each other in their layout, which is really awesome. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like Spice and Wolf, can't recommend it enough. Fantastic. It's also in book form if people want to read it as a book and not a comic. I just like recommend that constantly. People should definitely read Spice and Wolf. It's really good. <laughs> One of the best ones, though, that is like world-renowned for being well done and amazingly written is this series called Full Metal Alchemist. The woman who wrote it took the time to interview veterans mm. of World War Two, but mm. not but not the allies that you think like Canadians and Americans and Europeans. Like she talked to Nazi soldiers, no kidding, and Japanese soldiers, mm. because the whole comic itself is post uh, this universe's version of the Holocaust. Mm. Darren, that's great. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast and for making those recommendations to our listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.